was the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. Uh, this is Andreas, the founder and main editor of Films Fatale. We've got some amazing stuff happening right now, uh, which this episode is actually a big element of, and we will get into that in a second. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, this is actually split into two episodes, so this could only mean good things. So, what else? Who else do I have with me? James here content creator i am one host of the preferred essay podcast i release music under the alias boutique paul and yeah i'm really excited to talk about what we're talking about tonight this is rachel i've been an oscar fan since 2001 and i write for films fatale and i'm excited to talk about tonight's topic so tonight's topic can only mean one thing so this is the tuesday which we release every every week on a tuesday this is the tuesday before a big event. It's Oscar night, so this is an Oscars roundtable. Now, this is something that I've been doing for a number of years. Obviously, um, I've had to stop since I've not been on a podcast for a while that's been movie-related, but when I was doing stuff for Live in Limbo, um, they had two podcasts there, Capsule, which was like a variety of different topics, and ContraZoom, which is film-specific. I created the idea of doing an Oscar roundtable. With some extra rules and whatnot that various co-hosts help come up with, but the idea of the of the roundtables. So generally, how it used to work was we would pick the biggest topics or categories, like best picture, director, actor, actress, supporting, all of that stuff, and we would get into like deep discussions about like, okay, who do we want to win, but who's actually going to win, and it would get very, very interesting not necessarily heated because a lot of us would like maybe see eye to eye or if we disagreed it wouldn't be that bad so i posed this to both james and rachel when the, the nominees came out and both of you and i'm like stunned both of you didn't even want to do like the big categories you've done everything you've watched every single nominee which i think is astounding because rachel you had like all of the shorts minus like a couple and like 20 features or so. And James, you had like, with all things considered, like 54 nominees because you'd seen like two or three things. So first off, congratulations to you both. Uh, I've done this a few years in a row now. This is my third year in a row. But Rachel, as an Oscar fan, this is your first time having seen all of the nominees. And for James, you're brand new to this world. Like Oscars weren't really your thing, but yet you still played ball and... Like, my requirement for the both of you was to see, like, for the major categories, you know, maybe a handful, see all of the Best Picture nominees. But, like, this is your first Oscar anything, like, your first involvement, and, like, you've watched everything. So, I'm going to hand it over to Rachel first. Again, congratulations to you both. What's it like to have completed everything? And, like, geez, I didn't expect that. Well, it was an uphill struggle, I'll say that. Um, I just came home every night and watched three or four movies every night. And I usually try to keep pretty informed, especially about the major categories. I do think going into this, it's going to be fun to recognize more movies. And I'm definitely looking forward to being more knowledgeable going into the ceremony. And I've also experienced movies I never would have before. Awesome. And I'm guessing stuff like Pinocchio or Love and Monsters, like that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. And even like the live action version of Mulan, I don't think I would have gone out of my way to watch that either or anything like that. So I think it's going to turn out pretty well. Cool. And then James, when I brought this up, you know, the initial idea was, okay, once we get to this route table, you're going to be like maybe the outlier and you can like quiz us on this type of stuff. But, you know, the fact that you wanted to participate at all was really cool. But you've watched everything. So you had to watch like over 50 things, shorts included. So that must have been crazy for you. And also, like, what's it like to be this invested in something that you've never really paid much mind to before with the Oscars? Well, here's the thing. My intent was always to see every single nominee for this year, specifically for this reason. Now, my movie viewing got ruined because of COVID. The local theater chain here in Michigan, that's the big one, they started a VIP program, much like what MoviePass was. So I paid $20 a month and I got to see three movies a week. And I was averaging when I first started it because I it was late 2019 and when I think I had signed up for it, I was averaging two to three movies a week in the theaters. Wow. That's intense. And that was going to be my plan moving forward. And then theater shut down. So I'm like, well, I can't do that anymore. And then with all the craziness with work and all that stuff, I just never got around to watching anything. So my intent was always to watch everything. I definitely needed to catch up and make up for the fact that I didn't. So that's why, you know, I just got on the grind and watched all of them. You know, it took me, it took me just the month 
And honestly, I would have been done sooner if I didn't have like car troubles that prevented me from watching on certain days. I think it's incredible that you've seen as much as you have. Cause like, I think initially, what did you even, cause like I assumed Tenet, I assumed the five bloods. I think you'd seen like soul and like one other, what was the other was one? I saw soul, soul Mulan and Emma were the only ones that I had seen. That's it. And like, you saw a whole universe of, of different films and yeah, well, I'm glad that this experiment was able to help you feel like a little bit of like what was lost with the pandemic, like that, that movie going experience that you were looking to have. And I'm like blown away that the, the two of you this early on as well, because like the Oscars are still when we recorded this, this is like 10, 10 days away from the Oscars. This is the 15th. Like this early on, you've both have pulled it off and it's not easy. Some of this stuff is very hard and I congratulate the two of you. And what I can only hope that both of you notice when you watch the Oscars on Sunday, which is how I feel as well, even if so many of these names are just like blips in a category, like here are the visual effects, Love and Monsters, The Midnight Sky. They're just titles, and then four of them lose, one of them wins. But to me, it's like the flurry of the of the movie-going experience comes back for each and every name, where it's like, oh, yes, Midnight Sky wasn't that amazing, but, oh, the, the visual effects were really detailed. And, like, for each name, everything comes, for, comes rushing back. So I hope that that happens with the two of you and you get, like, a completely different Oscars experience than what you're both used to. Andreas, you're such a bad influence on us. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, we better get right down into the nitty-gritty because this is, like, this is what it's all about. So we're going to have two episodes. So the first one, we've just had a nice brief interview about what this is looking like. And then we're going to have a nice quiz. I'm going to test the two of them, uh, James being the newcomer and Rachel being the veteran, on some really difficult Oscar questions. So it could be entirely up to chance. That's going to be episode two. Now, the ways that both episodes are going to be uniform, we're going to have bite-sized rankings where we have all of us have pitched in our favorites and who we would actually want to win each category. And we see if we came to an agreement, if there's any sort of a tie, if there was like a two against one. So we'll see all of that after the bite-sized rankings, we're going to get into an in-depth discussion. So there's five categories this episode and six in the next. So this is when we get more into like why we loved something and whatnot, but the bite-sized it's just going to be nice and quick. We're going to start things off with Rachel. Do you want to give us the, the live action short film uh, results? Sure. Do you want all five rankings or just favorite and prediction? Just the favorites and predictions. We're going to skip like all of the all of the nominees. Sure. So my favorite was Two Distant Strangers. I do hope it wins. I think I, I went away from you two on this one and I said the present was going to win. I think that's because the BAFTAs told me that it has more support than we think. It's been on Netflix for a long time, so it's been very accessible for a while and more people have had the chance to see it. So I think it just has a slight edge there. Yeah, and uh, it looks like James and I both went with Two Distant Strangers as our favorite and the ones that that's actually going to win. So three of us said that Two Distant Strangers was our favorite of the entire category. But it looks like when it comes to predictions, we've got two to one, uh, Two Distant Strangers against the present. I honestly don't know because these these short categories could be a complete crapshoot. But <laughs> James, what do the animated short film nominees look like? Because that's a little different. <laughs> Animated short film is unanimous. If anything happens, I love you. How could for, it not, though? For favorite or for winner? For both. Yeah, so that's what it looks like. If anything happens, I love you. All three of us put it at the top. All three of us said it's going to win. Again, these things could be a complete guess, but in this instance, I feel like we're all on the right track. Documentary short subject. This one is a little different. So, James, you love a concerto is a conversation. Yes. Rachel, you loved Hunger Ward. Yeah, it was very intense, but... <laughs> oh, I, I'm surprised you rate that first, because, like, good lord, that was difficult. Um, oh, speaking of difficult, I had Do Not Split as number one, uh, but when it comes to the actual winners, Rachel and I, we saw Eye to Eye with A Love Song for Latasha, but James, you think Do Not Split's actually going to win? Yeah. You never know. I mean, I, I was thinking for the politics alone, maybe not, but... It looks like it's a two to one. A love song for Latasha and Do Not Split is, is one. So you never know. Again, with these short categories, there's a little bit of a, you know, here or there. It's hard to predict. 
Mm -hmm. I can I just add quickly, I think sometimes these are actually easier to predict if you don't know the shorts, because if you know what the topics are, you can tell what is topical and what's on the Academy members' minds. So I'm really wondering if I'm going to be more accurate this year, having seen them all. Yeah, that's interesting, because when I would do my predictions when I was younger and kind of just guess for the shorts, I felt like my record was a lot better, to be honest. <laughs> um, but speaking of like unpredictability and uh Rachel, we're doing sound next. What does that look like? Well, I first would like to register my disappointment that this was not a heavy metal remake of The Sound of Music, but we all picked uh, Sound of Metal for both winner and favorite. And I think that's a very good choice because no movie quite messes with sound like this one does. Yeah, I think it's an excellent example of, you know, how sound is used in in film and like especially the third act is like uh, what's the phrase of uh, bumping the lamp, which comes from uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is basically like you were already doing a great job. Now you're going above and beyond. Yeah, like sound of metal. I, I don't think we can we can say anything different than that. However, we have something a little bit different for film editing. What does that look like, James? For film editing, the results were actually a little different across the board this time. It seemed to be a little bit more varied, mm-hmm. but the results ended up being Sound of Metal and Nomadland, which is always kind yeah. of split. And all of our favorites are pretty different. So James, you loved The Father. Uh, Rachel, you loved Nomadland as your as your top pick, and I loved The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which I think all three are excellent examples. There weren't any terrible nominees in this category this year. Having said that, uh, James and Rachel, you both think it's going to be Nomadland, which it could very well be. That was my number two, I think. And for me, I'm thinking Sound of Metal. I just feel like the steam for it's kind of generating and I feel like Nomadland's going to get another big win elsewhere, but that's, that's a topic for later. Um, the final category I'll just quickly brush through is uh, visual effects. It's Tenet. We all favorite. did that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> for favorite, for, for a predicted win, uh, all three of us, Tenet, 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 Tenet. So now that that uh, palindrome is the most annoying word in the world, because I've said it like a million times, uh, Tenet, we are going to, you know, we are going to wrap up the the bite-sized categories and now get into our in-depth discussion. So what this is going to look like is we're going to have five categories. So we're going to start off with the animated feature film, get into writing adapted screenplay, get into both supporting roles, actor first, actress second, and then get into best director. So I'm going to start things off. We're going to do this roundtable style. So I'm going to start things off again with you, Rachel. We're going to get into the animated feature film. So the nominees, uh, what I, how I rank them, I put Over the Moon last, then Onward, then Shaun the Sheep. And then I had a really tough time choosing between Wolfwalkers and Soul, partially because they're so completely different in style. Um, I would love if Wolfwalkers won and ended Pixar's Reign of Terror, but I also think Soul is a highly deserving winner. It does very cool things with sound. It's visually striking, great performances. Definitely could take home the trophy, probably will. So you've decided that Soul is actually your favorite of, of the five, or like you you might not be able to split between that and Wolfwalkers, I'm guessing. If you ask me on a different day, I might say Wolfwalkers, but for now I'm saying Soul. That's fair. So I think we're all going to have a pretty similar idea. So James, what about you? How did you feel about the animated nominees? So Dead Last was, you know, the Shaun the Sheep movie. because it's What, really? <laughs> yeah, it was. it's just Shaun the Sheep. I mean... One more but Sean say. the Sheep's not just Sean the Sheep, though. I, I think it's it definitely has its place in overall pop culture, but it just, you know, it didn't really do that much for me. I've got a question, though. Have you seen the first one? I have not. I think that's the thing, because I love the first one. I think for like a dialogue-less claymation film, I think it's just so wholesome and just so lovely. So maybe I'm more willing to forgive how by the numbers and cookie cutter Farmageddon is maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it could be. I mean, not, not gonna lie. I do love the lineage it has being, you know, the creators behind Wallace and Gromit and all that. And I love the animation. I just think compared to the others, it was, you know, it was kind of hokey and that's where I came from. And then four, I did onward. Okay. Primarily because it, it, yeah, it's kind of, it kind of falls in the line of the, general movies that come out in that vein i also Mm -hmm. am not a fan of chris pratt so there are moments he kind of ruined it for me just because i just don't like him as an actor in general but i mean i thought i thought they did what they did well 
but you know, it just didn't really hit the mark for me on that one. And then uh, for three, I put over the moon. I put it in the middle. It didn't quite hit the mark of being amazing, but it definitely showed something that was a bit more daring than a lot of animated movies do, especially being that we're getting a lot more things that are Asian culture oriented, it seems in film, and they're getting a much bigger presence than they you know had previously been in the States, you know, and it had its fun moments, but you know, that one, it just falls a bit short. I, I was going to say, I thought Onwards, or sorry, Over the Moon started really strong and it ended really strongly. Beautifully designed, really great voice acting, but then the middle was just so poppy and childish that it sort of ruined yeah. it for me. Yeah. As soon as they get to the moon, which is like the focal point, you know, it's like if... Uh, if inside out, you know, when you get into like the kid's head, it becomes crap. And it's like, but that's the, that's the imaginative part. This part should have been amazing. But as soon as they hit the moon, it feels like dream works. If it was microwaved and then put onto a photocopier, <laughs> like it just, it just killed. Yeah, it had potential. It just killed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it, and it sucks because like, I've seen abominable. That was like, whatever this felt like a step in the right direction. And I was actually getting emotional and then they get to the moon and it's like, why does the moon suck? Because this is supposed to be the best part. Right. Yeah. And then the top two, I had difficulty as well, but I, I put Wolf Walker second. And this is a case I like to make where we need more traditionally animated films because I'm kind of getting sick of the 3D animation. And mm-hmm. this film definitely from an animation standpoint was just flawless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wolf- Especially well, considering Wolf the concept. Yeah, it's still digital, but it's made to look like it's 2D and like everything looks like like a pencil or like, you know, like the, the sketchiness of like a sketchbook. So it's still like based on traditional and it's gorgeous. Like I love Cartoon Saloon, which is the, the studio that does all of those. So like the breadwinner and... Uh, um, Kells or Secret of Kells, I think the movie was called. Yeah, The Secret of Kells and, and Song of the Sea. They have like a perfect track record. So if you like this one, James, honestly, check out the rest. They're They're great. Oh, I have to because yeah, it was it was fun. It was a great story, great voice acting. Also, I like you know that Sean Bean was in this movie and he didn't die. I know. Spoilers. <laughs> he, actually makes, he actually makes it to the end. <laughs> I think yeah. he was in Game of Thrones because you know he's close with his daughter and his daughter's kind of badass, and so I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's true. That's perhaps where he got his casting from. Where it's like, well, in Game of Thrones, it didn't really work out too well. But hey, that was your audition. You got it. He's like, really cool. And you got wolves, direwolves. That that's true. That is true. So Souls, your number one as well then, James. Do you think it's going to win? Yep, it's my number one. I think it's going to win. I think just on a personal level, it just really hit me in a way that the others didn't. And I, a lot of artists that I follow really loved this movie. I think being a musician, you feel it on a personal level, especially this person's journey where you know there are people betting against him and all he wants to do is do what he's passionate about. But you know he's trying to break through those barriers of people trying to hold him back. And that's what artists go through all the time with people and it's just yeah it just it meant a lot to me that we were someone actually told this kind of story and it was also kind of a detour from the typical stories that these kind of studios come out with outside of like maybe inside out which is i view this as like a sister film to that because same director same kind of vibe but i love that it wasn't like inside out part two like it's still different enough yeah for me i had over the moon last um Again, it was an improvement over Abominable, and I love the animation by Pearl Studio. Um, but it, once they get to the moon, it just resorts to so many cliches and just like it, 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 they could do better. That's all I'm saying. They could do better. Um, I had Shaun the Sheep fourth. I think it's uh, their most conventional kind of reliant film on like, uh, you know, like pop culture references and whatnot. Like how many 2001 references can you have in a movie? Like, <laughs> come on. It's one of my favorite films. Well, come on now. Uh, Onward, even though it's not my favorite Pixar film at third, I think it's actually a slightly underrated film. I was I liked it more than I was expecting. It's not perfect, but I did get like really emotional with it. It's like better than a than a good dinosaur or a brave. Like I think it's like slightly leaning towards better Pixar without being better Pixar. Mm-hmm. So, which we will get into in a second. Wolfwalkers. Love, that's like a huge leap in quality. There's like very little to complain about it. I think it's fantastic. And if it was a weaker year, perhaps it could have even won. But Soul is like my favorite Pixar film since Inside Out. Like that, that like, no. Unfortunately for Wolfwalkers, it's just too good. So it's my favorite of the bunch. And like all three of you or all three of us are saying that it's going to win. So uh, we're going with Soul and it's unanimous. So that is uh, that is great news. Uh, what we have 
quite the same results with the Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. So, James, what are your thoughts and opinions about the Adapted Screenplay category? And, like, was it an overly strong pool? Were there some duds? What does it look like? I think this whole entire year is really hard to decide because even the weakest films are still stronger than, like, other weak films in other years. Mm Mm-hmm. My dead last was Borat because it's just Borat. I mean, there's not really a screenplay there anyway. Yeah, I see what you mean there. I, I put it last too. That's fair. I put it last for other reasons, but like that's actually fair because a lot yeah, of it's so it's you know it's not really it's not really writing so much. I think fourth, I put One Night in Miami. Now this is probably going to sound weird to a lot of people if you've seen it. I think compared to the other nominees in this category, had it been a weaker year, this probably would have been up, but. It seems like this was an attempt to do a Sorkin style screenplay, but it just falls short. And there are there are some moments where I feel like there's a little bit true tried a little too hard to give Malcolm X humanity that people don't really recognize in him. And yeah, I just think, you know, it, it was still good, but like I said, it's just, you know, so hard to decide. Nomadland came in third because I mean it was great. I just think it was like not even to say it could be better, but, you know, it was what it was. I mean, overall, the film is amazing, but, you know, it, it was just kind of like compared to these other things, it was, it was just a little mid. But I mean, it's still, you know, it was pulled off great. The Father came second because that is a very smartly written screenplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, 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 the arrangement of it was really impressive, which leaves The White Tiger at number one, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> That's surprising. That's very surprising. What did you love so much about it? I'm very much in the idea of the strive for entrepreneurship. And this is a very great rags to riches story that is done not so much in the manner of how these stories go. Also, I think just, I think the delivery of the screenplay also was mixed language, which I always really am impressed with mixed language screenplays because those aren't always easy to pull off. Yeah. When somebody like Amir and Nara pulls it off, it's like, this sounds so real when it's like, you know, hearing uh, families that speak both languages, like hopping between back and forth and it doesn't sound forced. I love that as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not a moment where the dialogue dipped. It was just pulled off and, you know, they had a great cast to pull it off, too. So, yeah, that was just my pick for number one, because I was like, man, this is a really cool. Like that was just I I think it was also the tone of the movie overall that helped it because it was very, you know, it it was very modern in its approach when it it could have easily been something else. Now, do you think it's going to win? Do I think it's going to win? No, I think One Night in Miami is going to win, actually. Interesting. Really? Okay, that's that is a hot take. Why do you think it's going to win? I think it's going to win because it's intention outweighs the execution enough and i think mostly because of its approach and detailing an event like that i i I think i think in all honesty i think the movie is oscar bait unintentionally though so i I think they're gonna take a screenplay like this because it was like you know it's almost written like a play and that's also part of the reason it actually was a play imagine oh this was a play Mm -hmm. oh i didn't realize i'm not sure whether it was produced or not but it was a play for sure Oh, man, that makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah, all of these are um, a- adapted from previous things. So, like, Nomadline was a book. Uh, White Tiger was a book. Uh, Miami and The Father were plays. And Borat's a sequel. So, these are all adapted from previous things. And Borat came from a TV show. Oh, yeah. Borat originally did come Actually, from a TV that's show. that's true. I never thought about that. Yeah, the Allergy show. Yeah, that's true. I thought you were kidding at first. Like, his, his talk show. I was like, come <laughs> on, Rachel. <laughs> no, yeah, but so technically you're, you're right. It actually did. Yeah, I, I just so. think it's, you know, because obviously, my list is very subjective, but I think objectively, this is up there to where it has a chance to win. Cool. Okay. Well, for me, um, I had Borat last as well. Um, now that you've brought up the fact that a lot of it's improvised, it's actually a fair point. My main criticism was... Um, I feel like it just a lot of it was a little forced. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea that uh, not even just forced, but like some of it just doesn't even make sense. as like a screenplay. So like how it ends, like the, the, the surprise twist for people who haven't seen it is funny, but they don't really resolve it at all. Or like there's, there's a lot of gaps in it and it just, to be fair, that twist hasn't been resolved yet in the other sense anyway. That's true. But like, I mean, like within the storyline, like stuff just kind of happens, which is like very typical for like a Sasha Baron Cohen film that isn't the first Borat. It's just stuff just kind of happens and that's it. I like a lot of the improvised moments like uh, Maria Bakalova and like the stuff she comes up with on the spot, which we'll get into later this episode. 
but yeah, that that certainly last for me. Um, I think fourth, I also had one night in Miami, not because it's particularly bad or anything. I think it's great. I think this is like a leap in quality. There's a lot of like really deep stuff between the four icons as they have discussions for that, which I think is very interesting. Um, Three, I think I had the White Tiger. The way that the film is made clearly is like really based on the screenplay itself. And it's like it dictates the entire film. So it you could tell like it influences the way that it's edited, the way that it's acted, the way that it's shot. So many things you could tell come from the screenplay. And it's like you're you're watching the book come to life, which is really cool. Like you can see like a like a shot is like clearly a page of description. So I thought that was fantastic. Uh, number two, I had The Father, which um, is, a, is a brilliant adaptation of like what, what the stage was like, making it come to screen or come to the screen without looking like a typical kind of play to film adaptation, which we've seen time and time again, like Fences or Doubt. In this instance, I think it's a lot more imaginative and almost meta with the way that they, they place you in the lead character's mind. And finally, Nomadland, I first, I think, uh, what Chloe Zhao did with the original source material, which was just like a kind of like a like a confessional take on what it's like to be a nomad, expanding that, changing it, giving real nomads the opportunity to tell their story. And like every piece of dialogue is like a word of wisdom. Now, the only thing that's tricky is, is a lot of that improvised. I actually don't know. So that can be tricky as well. But I still have it as first. And at this point, I'm going to say it's actually going to win. So unless the father comes in as a dark horse, given what happened at the BAFTAs, I'm going to say this is Nomadland's big other win that it needs to secure for Best Picture. Rachel, what does your screenplay list look like? Well, I agree with you that Nomadland is going to win. I think that's the most likely outcome. Mm -hmm. I put Borat last. I have nothing against the Borat screenplay. I just think it wasn't quite special enough. Yeah. So, compared to the other four, I just see a noticeable drop in quality. Now, Nomadland, I actually ranked fourth, and it's interesting because I didn't like the way it adapted the book. Hmm. I felt that sort of the way it focused on McDormand's character narrowed it a bit, and it... I don't know, the, the book is nonfiction. It's more of a societal look, and I think they could have expanded that a bit more. So, I just didn't think it was as great an adaptation. Um, I put One Night in Miami third because I think adapting a play is extremely difficult to put on the screen because you expect a more expanded world. Mm-hmm. And not only did she adapt this... Uh, who who wrote the screenplay? Was it um, Regina? No, I think it was uh, the actual guy who wrote... Uh, here, I have it here. It's uh, it's actually Kep Powers who did the actual screen uh, the, the play himself. Okay, well, what was interesting about this was that it kept the play mostly in one room like it would have been on the stage. And they didn't really do much except for a couple of scenes in the parking lot and a couple of small things. And yet they still kept it dynamic and they still made those characters constantly moving and growing all without really changing the play stuff. And I found that so fascinating how they pulled that off. I'm still mad that movie didn't get a Best Picture nomination. I know. That, that's like one of the, the biggest like mishaps. So The Father is your is your top one or... The Father's my top one, so The White Tiger is second. I just think it's a very dynamic movie. I think it's an overall stellar adaptation, even though I haven't read the book. It tells the story very well. Yeah, I just think it's a very, very strong example of a book adaptation. And then The Father, yeah, I just, I love the way that that play slash screenplay plays with time. I just think it's it's the top example. Yeah, because like, uh, like both of you have already said, I feel like The Father is a play to film adaptation, but it does it so uniquely mm-hmm. that it's it's like it's like it's refreshing. There's nothing wrong with seeing a play to film adaptation. You see them all the time and you're aware that that's what they are. But in this particular instance, it's like it doesn't even matter. Like it's hardly noticeable. Like it feels like the the house has become yeah. his mind and vice versa. And you never quite know where you stand. Yeah. And like One Night in Miami, it really preserves the limited space of the stage, but it keeps it active enough that you can also see it as a movie. Absolutely. It also gives you kind of his own experience. Like it puts his experience out of you, almost like Memento puts you in the experience of Leonard where, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. it obscures your memory just watching it. But here it's you're seeing these things like, oh, wait, who's this person? Wait, 
this person said this, they didn't see that or did they didn't say that. And then once the end, once they kind of tie it all together and show you what's really going on, it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. Now it all makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. I love the father and I can't wait to talk more, even more about it for now. We're not going to be talking about the father cause we're going to be doing the best actor in a supporting role category. So I mean, with the category fraud going on here, Anthony Hopkins could have been <laughs> right. I know which speaking of which, <laughs> Speaking of which, we're going to get into that very soon uh, with um, one of my favorite nominations that just that still doesn't make any sense, but I don't care. Uh, so my last one, I had Sasha Baron Cohen in The Trial of the Chicago 7. Now, let me reiterate. I think he's fantastic in this role. This is just a very tough category. And I, f- exactly. I feel like as good as he was, you kind of get like the one side of him where he's like this snarky, rebellious guy who is as severe as he is, kind of just a pain in the butt. I have no problem with that. I think he nailed it. But like when you when you're like this tight of a competition, you have to get really picky and like be like, okay, well, how dynamic was he? And if you look at like the rest of the cast, a lot of people were good. Sure, he still stands out the most in that film, but like I don't think. I feel like he like carried the entire film or stole the show or anything outside of like select scenes. So he was fun. Exa- oh, I still love him. I thought he was fantastic and he was deserving of being nominated. Um, next I have Paul Racy and sound of metal, who I feel like is one of those performances that is just so warm and nurturing. And when his heart breaks, your heart breaks, he doesn't have to like give a monologue or yell. He just gets everything out of you. And like the smallest expressions he's so fantastic and i'm glad that something like this has happened so now he could be like taken more seriously and put in more films because i think he's deserved it um third is not really a supporting role i'm still happy he's here because i knew he wouldn't have made it for best actor because the competition was too tight like stanfield ladies and gentlemen is an oscar nominee which to this day makes me smile i think Regardless of what his position is in the film, I still think his performance is fantastic. I love how, as the film goes on, you can see his conflict between living a better life and having to do things he doesn't want to do. It's like that moral internal conflict, you know, butting heads and he's like anxious or he's like feigning joy or he's like actually enthusiastic. But in the back of his mind, he's worried it's this tug of war the entire film that I think he nailed. And I hope this isn't the last time he gets nominated. And the next time he gets nominated actually makes sense. So second, I've got Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. I adore Sam Cooke. And like, I didn't have to watch any reference videos to see just how spot on he was as a singer, as a performer. He stole the entire movie. I can't even remember the rest of what anyone else does as good as they were. Because to me, he was like the best of the four by far. And he just an amazing, an amazing, not even an impersonation. He became Sam Cooke, which to somebody like me who never grew up with him because he died many decades ago. This was like the closest I'll ever get. So thank you, Leslie Odom Jr. You killed it. Number one's got to be Daniel Kaluuya, who's my top one. He's my one who's going to win. As Fred Hampton, same thing. Perfect, perfect, perfect chameleon transformation into this person. And he's in the film much less than than like Keith Stanfield is and is arguably the supporting role. And yet he steals the entire movie. It's his. Everything is his, from his speeches to just how he is as an everyday guy, just to chill with or trying to be serious about trying to get, you know, his, his activism on the right track and, you know, who to talk to, how to get his movement going. Brilliant. Daniel Kaluuya, um, get ready for your Oscar. So, Rachel, how do you feel about the supporting actors? I had the same ranking as you, except I had Racy and Stanfield switch, so Racy's third. And there's no real rhyme or reason to that. I could give you a different answer on a different day because this category is so tight, with the exception maybe of Cohen, who I think is a pretty solid number five. Um, I have to say about Kaluuya, he absolutely commanded the screen every moment he was on there. You need to have someone you can believe can be a leader, and he absolutely fulfilled that role. I, You know, this has been a weird year. I'm sure there are going to be some surprises, and you never really know till the envelopes open, but if there's anybody who's a lock tonight, or that night, it will be Kaluuya. Yeah, and you raise a really good point. I feel like 
a lot of people misunderstand. So, like, when people were mad that David Oyelowo wasn't nominated for Selma, it takes so much to be able to, like, I be identical with how Martin Luther King or Fred Hampton could speak to an audience. That's not easy. You're not just copying them. You have to do it yourself. And Kaluuya nailed it. Like he, I would have listened to everything, whether he was playing a guy or if he was just talking, if he was reading the telephone book like that, I'd be like, sure, I'm going to dial this number. Cause you told me to do it. Like he's so compelling. And like what he's telling in this film is so important to hear nonetheless. So you're right. It was like perfect casting. Mm-hmm. And he's very human. He's not just a person who gives speeches. You, you see his full character, too, in the scenes where he's not on stage. Yeah, it's like a complete palette of like emotions and thoughts and traits and everything, which the Fred Hampton I was familiar with because I've seen like, you know, the iconic documentary and some footage here and there was the, the, the speaker. But to see him as like a person, he brought him back. He brought him back to life and he did him justice. That's the way I feel. James, uh, what does your supporting actor ranking look like? Oh, this is going to be fun. So number five, I put Paul Racy for the simple fact his character doesn't have the weight of all the other ones, mainly because literally every other role is a person in history. Oh, that is true. Yeah, that's true. Everyone else is playing a real person. He's playing somebody fictional and he was still good. I mean, I don't like necessarily like how he did what he did when, um, see, I can't spoil what goes on but you know his kind of attitude towards when he uh the main character does a certain thing i just thought he was kind of like a jerk for the most part even though he tried to be helpful so that character wise i kind of rank him low but yeah i, th- I thought his performance was all right it's tough love i'm so, i'm so against tough love <laughs> okay that's fair my number four is lakeith stanfield okay interesting one because he's the lead role so i'm not gonna get rank him high in the supporting role <laughs> okay so that's actually gonna affect that's actually gonna affect your ranking that's fair I mean, it's the supporting role, so that's fair. Also, I just feel like he's interchangeable. Another actor could have done just as good. Oh, that I don't agree with. But uh, like, who would you have had instead? Uh, not necessarily instead, but I think uh, after honestly, after watching Two Distant Strangers, Joey Badass would have been great in this role. He would have actually. Maybe I don't know. I I love Lakeith Stanfield. I feel like he like nails every role of his. Oh, he's great. That's not, and it's not to say anything against him. I just think that I'm I'm saying more so the role, not necessarily the actor, because like these characters, like all these characters could have been different, played by different people in different time periods. Like a '90s version probably would have had Will Smith as Fred Hampton and Chris Rock as uh, what's his name? I can't I can't remember. Oh yeah, I don't know why. (laughs) It's isn't it Will something? Isn't it? Wow. <laughs> yeah. We'd have to look it up. But yeah, I, that, that's just how I feel. But yeah, I mean, he wasn't the supporting actor. He was the lead role. So it's like, I, I can't rank him that high because that wouldn't be fair to everybody who was a legitimate supporting role. Three is Leslie Odom Jr. Because that performance as Sam Cooke is just, okay. you know, it, even if it's not the best performance, it's like, you know, there is there wasn't as a performance as unique as his. Oh, like in that movie, you mean, or like in the five nominees. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a uniqueness to it, especially just, you know, Given the history of Sam Cooke, it's like, that's not an easy role to pull off. Like, they probably could have gotten anybody for it. But, you know, I thought just he had this, you know, certain touch. He had this, like, heart and soul with it. So, uh, number two is Daniel Kaluuya. What? Okay, okay. Uh, Let me explain. Because I I knew I was going to get this reaction. Okay. So... (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll just start off. I have Sasha Barracona as number one. Well, who else? (laughs) Mainly because he is Abby Hoffman. That's how I based Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, it's just like, I think he just embodied this character in a way that, you know, it's like nobody but him could play him. But the reason I have Daniel Coulier as number two. Now, I have a personal philosophy when it comes to rankings. Number one is a personal thing. And most of the times the number two is usually oh, the actual. So subjective. It's like when it's like, like you got to think about oh, okay. it. When Rolling Stones mm-hmm. redid their top 500 albums. The number one changed. Pet Sounds still remained at number two. Okay, so it's like what they felt like could punctuate that moment, but really Pet Sounds is the best album. So obviously Daniel Kaluuya has a certain weight with this role. And I mean, it's also, you know, I I, I was going to rank him high regardless because it's like, you know, Fred Hampton's not going to be a easy role to take on because, I mean, you know, I, I wonder what it was like for him after playing the role. He plays a historical figure who was murdered at a young age. I mean, some some actors don't quite recover from roles like that very easily. You know, how how far did he mm-hmm. take embodying this character? And also, I mean, just Daniel Kaluuya's versatility. 
he's really showing a lot of promise. And I just find it hilarious that, you know, he got his beginning on the show Skins. And it seems like that show just seems to just, you know, have all these actors that have gone on to do great things. Yeah, like Death Patel as well, I believe. Yeah, Nicholas Holt. Yeah. You know, but yeah, so, I mean, that's my ranking. But yeah, that's what I say. It's like, you know, the, the one is like the personal, this is the subjective win. But, you know, and I have Daniel Kaluuya to win because honestly, I think partially because of how great he did. But also, I think the times are going to kind of dictate some of these picks. For sure. But I still like, I still personally believe like from a quality standpoint, he is the best, like heads and shoulders above the rest. There's a theory I've had for a long time that actors tend to win on their second nomination. You'll notice this a lot of times, like Colin Firth did, um, Daniel Kaluuya probably will. There's many more examples. They're just not coming to me right now. And I think it's because you have to get noticed by the Academy first. And then on your second go around, you take the win. And I think Kaluuya is going to fall into that category. And what's interesting is uh, if it's your first nominee or nomination or first win, sometimes you either stay there forever or you taper off completely. Like an F. Murray mm-hmm. May Abraham or something where it's like, that, or like, okay, so like a Ben Kingsley as well. Because I know he won for Gandhi. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did he ever get nominated again? Because he wasn't for Schindler's I List. Nomin- no, he didn't get nominated for Schindler's no, List. Didn't. I think he just missed out for Schindler's List. Yeah. yeah. And like, let's be honest, he's not going to get it for Love Guru. So like, oh no, <laughs> House of Sand and Fog he did again. That's true. But like, That's in right. general, like if you win for your first one, even if you get nominated again, you kind of like lose your steam. Like, it's not going to happen again unless you're, like, Christoph Waltz. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of, like, int- like interesting intricacies. But uh, we'll get to those in a second because when it comes to act, when it comes to Best Supporting Actress, sorry, yes? I was just going to say it's absolutely amazing that Kaluuya and Stanfield were, I don't think it's saying too much to say iconic in Get Out, and that really shot them both up to fame. Yep. And it's amazing that they are teamed up again in the same movie and they're getting Oscar recognition on a whole new scale. And I hope it's the last, it's not the last time we see them together. Hopefully not, because I I love both of them. But we're talking about veterans versus first timers. So, uh, Rachel, what does our uh, best actress in a supporting role category look like? Okay, it's the Battle of the Grammas, you guys. You actually think so? Well, I don't know. So my prediction is Yunya Jung for Minari because she has, or Minari, sorry, because she's been picking up all the most recent precursors. I still think the number one person who could spoil, even though her movie was not good at all, is Glenn Close. Just because Meryl Streep won for The Iron Lady. That was a god-awful movie. So I think that is not going to stop Glenn Close if they're feeling sentimental enough. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Meryl Streep win other awards for the Iron Lady too, though? I can't remember. I remember it was Davis versus Streep that year. So I think Streep or Davis won some precursors too. Okay, true. For like the help. Yeah. My number one pick in terms of quality was Bakalova because I just thought she absolutely rocked the movie. She had the toughest task out of all of them. She had to hold up to Sasha Baron Cohen and she gave the movie its heart. Mm -hmm. And she transformed it into something different from the original that, while part of the same universe, could stand on its own. It, a lot of that was on her shoulders. So she's my number one in terms of quality. Yo Jung, or sorry, Yoon Yo Jung is second. Then Olivia Coleman for The Father, very solid, all around fabulous. Amanda Seyfried for Mank, fourth. And then Glenn Close, fifth. Sorry, Glenn, the movie was just awful. You were good, but no. You deserve to win Glenn Close, just not for this. Maybe the Sunset Boulevard remake. Which should have happened already. Uh, James, what, what do mm-hmm. your uh, supporting actresses look like? So, number five, obviously Glenn Close, because Hillbilly Elegy was a pile of garbage. <laughs> okay. Also, it's, it's a role still any you, aging woman in Hollywood could have played. Like, she did great, but... It, any one of them could have pulled off this role just fine. I mean, with what they have to work with considering this movie. Well, let me pose this to you. Amy Adams, who's one of the greatest actresses of our generation, looked terrible. And I don't mean like, you know, with makeup and stuff. I mean, like acting wise, looked appalling yeah. in this film. So perhaps she deserved a nomination alone because she, she weathered the storm. And she actually came out looking good. <laughs> I don't know. What are the rest of your what does the rest of your list look like? Uh, I put fourth Olivia Coleman. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I, I just didn't think the role the role isn't anything special. I thought the movie was great, but just the role wasn't anything special. Nothing against her. She's a great actress. Mm-hmm. Imagine if she defeats close again. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do think she she's more fit to be a leading character though. 
Like the the supporting role, it was okay, but it's like I much prefer her in a lead. That's fair. Three, I actually picked Amanda Seyfried because it was just a perfect fit. I think she had the personality, you know. Yeah. You know, she was able to buy this character very easily, you know. I mean, turning into a 1930s Hollywood starlet isn't really an easy task, but she just did it effortlessly. Mm-hmm. The second actually mirrors Rachel's uh, uh, Yu Jung Yoon for Minari because she was just great. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think the personality of this grandma was way different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, also considering this family's at least like a lot more tolerable to bear. Oh, yeah. So there's also that. I mean, and more nuanced. <laughs> yes, and actually good. This so, is just certain quirks as a character. She almost played two characters. She was one character in the first part of the movie and then another character in the second part, and yet she bridged that gap easily. Yeah. Yeah, that transformation does definitely play to the strengths of just the character in general. I mean, that was a, it was a character necessary to kind of tie everything together, especially towards the ending. It was almost necessary for what happened to happen. It's really hard not to give spoilers on here. I know. And then, <laughs> you know, one is obviously Maria because this movie wouldn't have been possible. They wouldn't have pulled it off without her. That's fair. It's, it, it's just, she was just perfect for it. I mean, especially just, I think it was just how insane it was. Like who, who wants to do this kind of thing? You know, this secret movie that, most people who are in it don't even realize it's a movie. Mm-hmm. I'm still shocked how well they hit it, but we only heard about it a few weeks in advance, I think. Yeah, I know. And like, there were people who like saw them recording. I was like, oh my God, it's Borat. So why didn't we listen? I don't know. Like they, they did a really <laughs> good job. Um, who do you have to win though? I have Olivia Coleman to win. Really? Interesting. Okay. That is, that is a dark horse. Because if, if any category would just get sideswiped and pick the wrong answer, I think it would be this one. Oh, but like, I don't know if I want to say Olivia Coleman's the wrong answer though. <laughs> no, not, not necessarily the wrong answer, but I think, I think it was, this would be the safe pick. Okay. My initial ranking, I'll get into it quickly, was uh, from fifth to first. Amanda Seyfried, Glenn Close, uh, Eugene Yun, uh, Maria Bakalova, and Olivia Coleman. This was like two days after the nomination. So naturally, sometimes things can switch. So currently, my five is Glenn Close, who was fourth before. And I, I want to reiterate, she's like the only good thing in this, in this atrocious movie. I don't necessarily agree that any elderly actress could have played this. How many people could get out of this movie alive looking good? Even Amy Adams couldn't. Like, everybody else was obliterated by this garbage direction. Sorry, Ron Howard. I love Arrested Development. Garbage direction and terrible screenwriting and just annoying abundance of schmaltz. And she comes out of it looking good, where it's like, please save the movie. I actually would have given this close to zero if her part in the movie towards the second act didn't exist. Um, so for my four, I'm going to put Amanda Seyfried, who I'd last before. I feel like once I revisited Mank, I, I had her fifth before because I felt like she was great, but I felt like her character and like what she brought to it was like, she's nice when you see her, like, you know, like she like she brightens the room and then that's kind of it. But when I revisited it, I feel more in line with what you were saying, James. It's actually not easy to embody the spirit of the golden age of Hollywood that well. And she does, she plays Marion Davies so well where it's like, you know what? I'm noticing that she feels like the spirit of the golden age is back. And that's not easy. And like when I was like really scrutinizing it and comparing her to her other performances, this is a pretty big leap for Amanda Seyfried. So I'm feeling more generous now. I, I'm, I feel like a four- a four spot is pretty good. And this is what happens with tight categories. You know, things can flip around. This one, this is tough because basically my three to one is going to be the same. So Yujin Yun is going to be third as fantastic as she was. So it's a it's a big leap in quality, in my opinion. She embodies both like what the child what the children perceive her as and what the, 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 the parents. So like, you know, her son-in-law and her and her daughter embody. She plays all of these traits perfectly. And when it gets to like the big climax, you don't feel like the anger that you you could have felt had the movie ended after act one, you feel hurt and you feel devastated for her. And 
I think that's that's what was supposed to happen. You're supposed to feel that entire cycle, and she pulls it off. Uh, my number two is still going to be Maria Bakalova, who I firmly agree. If it wasn't for her, this movie would be soulless. She matches what Sasha Baron Cohen can do, but arguably better because she has the heart that Borat doesn't have. She connects with people when they're good people in a way that Borat didn't. And that's not a knock on Borat. It's just a different character. Uh, what she resembles for, you know, women's rights and like, you know, like the feminist angle of the film, she nails entirely. And she gives it that oomph that the film deserved when it was speaking those words. And her comedic timing is fantastic. So like she's brilliant. And knowing that she's actually a classically trained dramatic actress I'm excited to see what she does next, even though I know she's doing a bunch of like comedic stuff right away. I'm excited to see what she could do in general. I think she's going to be a bright actress very soon. My number one is Olivia Colman. I love how much she can do in so little. And I think her minimalist acting is just gorgeous. I think uh, I love seeing her not being a comedic person or a, a famous figure like the queen and the favorite. This is like just a straight up dramatic role. And I think she nails it. Just what she could do with like the slightest emotions and like a couple of lines to me. I, I love her. She's one of the greatest actresses of our time. I think she's fantastic, but my winner is going to be uh, Eugene Young. I think it's interesting. We put Coleman all over the place. I know it's interesting because it's that type of a role where it's like, she's not in the film that much. She doesn't have like monologues or anything. So how do we read it? And we all read her differently. I think that's, that's really cool. Lastly though, we're going to end off this episode with our best director category. So, James, okay, this is one that I saw when you sent me your results ahead of time. I tried to avoid the in-depth stuff, but this is what I saw. So please take it away because I think you've got a very interesting ranking. And this goes in line with what you were saying before. Yeah. So for number five, I put Promising Young Women, you know, Emerald Fennel. I think... Again, it's another instance. This was really hard because everyone was so strong. If it was a weaker year, it probably would have been ranked higher. But you know, she definitely pulled this movie off. You know, it was a very, it was a very slick movie from start to finish. But you know, it's it's very it's nuanced, not to a fault, but compared to everything else, it's really a hit or miss for the season, depending on who it's up against. And for fourth, I actually put Minari. Interesting. And again, this was. It was just comparing it to everybody else. You know, it's really hard. This was a great movie, but, you know, I think from a singular direction standpoint, it was great. But I think the other directors added certain nuances that were made the direction better in certain aspects. If you're if you're taking it from the single strand of directing three Nomadland, mainly because I think it was it sits. It's just a movie that sits in the middle. It, It was done very well. And again, I have to reiterate, you know, this whole ranking was difficult because I'm like, I don't know. I want to put all of them at number one, but I know I can't do that. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I I think it was a good direction, especially when you have the combination of fictional people with the actual people that the book's about, you know, that that was pulled off really well. I put Thomas Binterberg another round at number two because he's such a good director, especially I will forever want Mads Mikkelsen to dance in every single movie he does for the rest of his life. As long as it's jazz ballet. Yes, jazz ballet ballet specifically. You don't want to see him crump? No, no thanks. Also, the weight that this movie had, I was not expecting it to be that intense of a story of a drama. Like it was it was hard to watch at moments because I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. I'm like, this is really hard to, you know, get through because this is just, you know, with how their lives are being affected with what they do. And then one, I put Mank because David Fincher made a 1930s film to a T in the 2020s. And it's unfair how talented he is. I loved all those little details. Yeah. Like, I, it looks like <laughs> you would almost think these are these people like uh, Orson Welles was in that movie. Mm-hmm. He brought him back from the dead. You know, it, it's just, you know, it's no doubt that. David Fincher is almost a perfect director. I mean, he has his down periods for a certain, but you know, anything that kind of dips is for specific reasons. You know, it's, it's especially how meticulous he is. But for my pick, who I think I'm going to win, I think Thomas Vinterberg is going to pull this one. That really? is a very big, very that would be a lovely spicy win. take. So what, what do you think? I think it's just the quality that the characters bring. This is this is a very different story than you usually see. 
And that's it's often the kind of stuff that, you know, it isn't surprising from foreign filmmakers, but, you know, it takes something that's almost really taboo if it was done in an American setting and turns it into this, you know, almost beautifully tragic picture of guys whose lives are kind of deteriorating and they need something to help bring life back into them. And then they go too far. Yeah. And then they go too far. But, you know, there's this. They they eventually have this drive to kind of bring things back, and it doesn't always quite work. But yeah, I just think you know it's just one of those things where I think I think he's going to pull through with it because there's a quality to these characters that not a lot of directors would be able to bring out. You can have the best directors, but I think it's just given. You know, I haven't seen a lot of his other stuff, but having seen the celebration, I understand every decision he made in this movie because of the promise he showed two decades ago. That's a very, very interesting pick, which I don't think a lot of people are, are, are making. So this is why it's really interesting to have like, you know, a first time or like an outlier because you're not taking part in any of the politics or anything. You're going strictly based on your own intuition, which is very interesting. I tell you, this is going to be a very interesting rollout with all my picks. Yeah. Did you say you you had seen my list before? This was the only one that I saw because it was like near the top. So when I saw that you had uh, Vinterberg to win, I was like, damn, okay, I'm going to have to ask him about that. <laughs> like that that's that's going to be I'm really gonna interesting. I'm going to say he'd be delighted if he won just because it's so unexpected. I know. like That would be like the biggest, not in a bad way, but like the upset of, of the evening. Mm-hmm. So with mine, and I agree, James, all four of these were so deserving. So like, I don't mean to be a jerk or anything, but if Aaron Sorkin was here, I'd be like, last, last, because like... Or Ron Howard. If Ron Howard was there, I'd boycott. Oh, so, most definitely. Which I, is yeah. saying a lot. Uh, which is saying a lot because I've watched this religiously for years. So um, I hate, hate that I have to have Emerald Fennel last because I think she is so creative with Promising Young Woman. And I've seen it multiple times now since uh, just my initial viewing months ago. And... I've warmed up to so many decisions that she made, like the use of like the, the eerie string section version of toxic by Britney Spears. At first that threw me off guard. Now I think it fits. Also like what I try to tell people is when it comes to like the amazing colors in the, in the, in the case of this film where it's like the lead actress or, you know, it's a uh, Carrie Mulligan, but I don't remember the character's name when she's like wearing blue and Cassie, Cassie thank you. When, when Cassie's wearing blue and there's like blue in the background and the props are blue that could be cinematography, but that's also direction because direction said, I want you to unify all of these elements, the, the production, the costumes, the makeup, that's, that's direction. And when it comes to the genre bending to the amazing ideas, this is not a weak five. This is like as strong of a five as you can get. I cannot so wait for me too. Yeah. I cannot wait to see what else she's going to do because I think this is, a very bright future that we have here and what a what an imaginative film, filmmaker so the fact that she's here at all amazing i think she was also actually pregnant during filming which makes it extra tough jeez i i don't want to mm-hmm. know what that's like that's that's really tough even like doesn't even matter what part of pregnancy any of it for any reason is so tough like good for her jeez i had no idea actually that that's news to me mm-hmm. i saw some production shots and yeah she was pregnant in them jeez well good for her that give it to her now then actually like now she deserves it mm-hmm. um my number four is uh another round thomas winterberg i think his balance between tragedy and and comedy is so so borderless in this like there's not like moments of both it just is one big blur of a film in a good way like life itself is monotonous but then when you do this experiment it's like freeing it's like blissful and both aspects are like their own version of a blur i love how unified this film is and james you brought up a good point if an American made this or somebody else who who just wasn't qualified, maybe it'd feel a lot more like this is the funny part. This is the sad part. This is the lesson. Like you don't get any of that. It's like it's like a uniform film, which is uh, very hard to pull off with this subject matter. And plus, he's a great director overall. I feel like this is a legacy nomination. So uh, he's my number four. My number three, I've got Fincher again. The production's amazing. The cinematography, the the makeup, 
the costumes, but they all have to tie together with like the person steering the ship. It's not like it's only that department that's good. It's everything. So the illusion comes from him and like all the little things like having the projection holes, which is clearly a digital film. So there's no need for it, but like just to keep that illusion alive, that this is a golden age film, just amazing. And I feel like, this is some of the most imaginative work that Fitcher's ever done, which is saying a lot because he's always being creative. So I love it. I think from a directorial standpoint, it's amazing. My number two was the Isaac Chung from Minari. I think it's just such a lush film, even at its saddest moments. It's done so artistically. Minari is just incredible. And I think Lee Isaac Chung is a fantastic filmmaker, and I'm glad that he's getting his dues. Um, my number one, obviously, is going to be Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. I love the blending of what feels like a direct, like a documentary type of filmmaking with real. So you get something that's kind of like a mixture of like a cinema verite, but also Tree of Life, which is like this poetic, gorgeous end result that you know you learn a lot from. But at the same time, it's not like this is when you're supposed to cry. This is when you're it's supposed like to. Like Terrence Malick made a Dogma '95 film. Yeah, yeah, kind <laughs> of. Like you, I, you say that possibly jokingly, but you're not. You're not far off. Like it's no, that's legitimate. Like yeah. it, it's like the way it was shot and just like what it deals with. It's like oh, it's this very stripped down movie, but it's so beautiful. Yeah, I think I think Chloe Zhao is one of my favorite filmmakers working right now. Like she made my my wall of directors on Films Fatale. So I. I also project that she's going to win. I think at this point, it's going to be nobody else. Nomadland has like more of an iffy shot for best picture. Not really, but more than this. Really? Uh, more than this. Like, I feel like Chloe's house like got this. I think Nomadland's got this for best picture, but we'll talk about that later. Oh, oh, so do I. But like, I feel like even <laughs> then, like that's like maybe 95. This to me is 100. This to me is 100. That's what I mean. Like, it's never 100, Andres. This is 99. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, what are, What does what your um, your ranking look like for this final category? Okay. So I had almost identical ranking with Andreas. It was very, very hard to rank in a year of tough categories. I think I even messaged Andreas to say that this was mean that he made us do it. My bad. So, um, Emerald Thanel, like I said, she was, she was number five. And again, nothing against her. It was just a very strong category. I loved Promising Young Woman. I even ranked it number three for Best Picture. And I just found the sort of candy-colored pa- palette, the bubblegum pop music. It contrasted many, many sides of being a woman within this movie. And she pulled it off so seamlessly and she balanced everything so well. She's very deserving. I'm sorry I couldn't rank her higher. Um, and then I put Winterberry as number four for another round. Again, nothing wrong with that. I just like the other movies better. I think another round's very strong. Um, Sorry, can you say his name again? Because you, you, you can like actually pronounce it better than I can. Winterberry. The, oh, that's amazing. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Some, where you see Berg, it's usually pronounced Berry in Scandinavia. So Really? Okay. Yeah, and that goes into my next point, that another round has a lot of Danish culture in it that I think another director might have bungled. So it was really tr- a treat for me to see it. Uh, the cool thing is the story behind that movie. Um, he really incorporated a lot, I think, of his own history and personality into it as well. But you don't see it. It's not obvious. He's not like, look at me, I'm making a movie about myself. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point, actually. Um, He filmed it after his daughter's death, and he actually filmed it in her school, and some of her real-life classmates were extras. And she, the daughter, actually came up with the movie before she died. Yeah, that's... It's just such a sad thing that that he had to go through, and I feel like uh, he he made the most of it with... um, you know, incorporating her into the film as much as possible. That's a, that's a, that's a very great point, actually. Yeah, and that ending is pitch perfect. Yes. Then number three, you've got Chung for Minari, and I just think solid all around, stellar film. Nothing really more to say that except that he did a great job. Fincher for Mank as second because I felt I feel Fincher is one of the strongest all around directors in Hollywood because he knows how to keep all the parts running. He is a manager as well as a director. He hires the strongest people at the top of their game, and he knows how to get them to give their best work. And I have never seen that so strongly as in Mank, because every bit of that talent was on the screen. So I'm, I'm giving him the number two spot for his ability to just run the whole production and make it work. And I think Zhao for Nomadland as number one. 
I know that I gave this movie crap for focusing on the personal story and not the societal as much, but I do think that there was a lot of poetry to McDormand's journey. I think that that was reflected in the cinematography. I think that, I don't know, I think she just tightly edited, well, okay, she was nominated for editing, but I think the film is very tightly edited, tightly put together, and it just all came together very well. And you have her for winning as well, I'm guessing? Yeah, I think that's like saying, is the sky blue? Oh, uh, well, sometimes it is. But I think in this case, yes, that means that means yes. So, fantastic. That is it for this episode. And uh, we are going to hop right into our part two. So please join us for that. And we're going to talk more Oscars. Plus, I'm going to quiz both Rachel and James on some stupidly difficult Oscar questions. So stay tuned. That was the K-Cut. This is now leaking into the L-Cut. Until we're back to the K-Cut, so come join us again. 